Good morning, uh, good day, and good afternoon, wherever you are from Singapore. Uh, my name is George Bustin. I am visiting research fellow at the Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore. And I am presenting the uh, next event of our uh, ME 101 series. Our speaker today is uh, Dr. Jean-Luc Saman, Senior Research Fellow, and uh, he will talk to us about uh, a very timely topic, the United States in the Middle East, US allies in the Middle East, and the prospects for American policy in the Middle East. But first, let me introduce uh, Dr. Jean-Luc. He is a senior research fellow at the Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore. And uh, uh, his specialization is Middle Eastern strategic affairs, in particular, the defense policies of Israel and the Gulf states. Prior to joining the Institute, Dr. Saman was a policy analyst at the Directorate for Strategic Affairs of the French Ministry of Defense from 2008 to 2011, research advisor at the NATO Defense College from 2011 to 2016, and associate professor in strategic studies at the UAE National Defense College from 2016 to 2021. His most recent book co-authored with Frederic Grar, The Indian Ocean as a New Political and Security Region, looks at the changing geostrategic environment of the Indian Ocean region. Dr. Samahan has authored four other books and several articles and monographs for various international academic and policy journals, such as Survival, Orbis, Comparative Strategy, Parameters, Politique étrangère, and The International Spectator. Dr. Saman is a former student of Arabic at the French Institute for the Near East in Beirut, Lebanon. He holds a PhD in political science from 2009 from the University of Paris One, Panthéon-Sorbonne, as well as an accreditation to supervise research earned in 2017 from the Doctoral School of Sciences Po, Paris. Dr. Saman, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. And uh, welcome to everyone, uh, either in the auditorium or uh, on Zoom. Uh, so we, we continue uh, our uh, long conversation on geopolitical competition in the Middle East, uh, today discussing uh, maybe the, the most important external player uh, in the region, the US, uh, followed uh, in coming weeks uh, by discussions on China and uh, Russia. So obviously uh, discussing uh, the US in the Middle East in uh, one hour and a half is a challenge. So what I'll try to do is to, uh, uh, to bring uh, a big over overview. I won't pretend to give uh, the most comprehensive, most detailed uh, a look at the U.S. policy, the history of that policy, uh, but I'll try uh, uh, to give a snapshot of uh, the main interests, uh, 
the, the priorities, uh, what are the allies, what are the partners? So basically three points that I'll be covering uh, in the next uh, 40, 45 minutes. Uh, first, what is the place of the Middle East in the US foreign policy? Because there's a tendency uh, either when you're in Europe or in Asia uh, or in, in the Middle East to believe that you're the priority of the US. Uh, and you could argue that it's a, it's a mistake from, for all the regions that uh, the US, uh, this might sound like a paradox, is more inward looking than, uh, uh, than uh, it looks. The second thing is I'll, I'll uh, uh, emphasize what are the priorities today for the US in the Middle East? How does the US articulate its policy in terms of objectives, in terms of challenges, what are the threats and so on? And finally, I'll cover uh, the current partnership policy. What are the main uh, countries uh, that rely uh, on the US uh, at the moment in the region? So first of all, what is the Middle East today in US foreign policy? And uh, the starting point for that, I think, is uh, how does the Biden administration describe its uh, uh, policy towards the Middle East? So we don't have yet a national security strategy <clears throat> of the Biden administration. The document was supposed to be released in February, but for the obvious reason that was the Ukraine uh, war, the document was postponed and we are waiting. It's supposed to be uh, published later this month. But what we know from a previous document that was issued last year, the interim national security strategy uh, strategic guidance, the Biden administration has been very explicit about its ambition for the Middle East, which is to, I, I quote here, to right-size the U.S. presence in the Middle East. The, this terminology, right-size, is actually uh, a way to say clearly a disengagement. The idea is to uh, scale down the military and the diplomatic uh, presence of the U.S. in the Middle East because of two phenomena. Uh, first, the Indo-Pacific uh, priority, which is an, until today the biggest priority for the Biden administration, the idea that the US has to shift its resources, its interest towards the Indo-Pacific because of the challenge with China. And the second thing is the growing concerns even before Ukraine regarding Russia in Europe. So as a result, there's a clear tendency, which is now very explicit in the documents, in the speeches of the Biden administration, to uh, um, indicate a disengagement from the Middle East. Now, having said that, it's not something which is a major shift in the history of uh, the US uh, foreign policy. And you could argue that the US has always been what you could call the reluctant sheriff of the Middle East. This is uh, um, an expression uh, that uh, the, the director of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, had used back in the 90s to describe the US foreign policy after the end of the Cold War. The idea that the US was de facto the sheriff, the only uh, major uh, power in town, but it was a reluctant one. It didn't want to play uh, really that role because of the isolation, uh, the, the tendency of uh, going inward and not outward. 
uh, I took here a, a picture that uh, some of you may know, which is uh, the meeting between uh, President Roosevelt and uh, King Ibn Saud uh, uh, at that time, so the, the King of Saudi Arabia in 1945. This is a picture that uh, that took that was taken during the first major meeting uh, uh, between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. in 1945. We're ending the uh, the Second World War, and this picture is seen as the uh, the starting point of the U.S. policy towards the Middle East, because during that meeting uh, you have the Saudi King and the the uh, President of the United States agreeing on the idea that in exchange for access to oil, the U.S. will provide security uh, to the Saudi Kingdom. And that is the idea that after 1945, after that, uh, that meeting, this was basically uh, the definition of the U.S. policy towards the Middle East. That's actually more complicated than that, uh, in a sense that uh, the U.S. only slowly uh, took that mission of securing uh, the, uh, the region uh, seriously uh, a bit longer. It took several decades, as we will see, uh, for the U.S. to really play that role of uh, the, the primary military uh, or primary security provider uh, for uh, the Middle East. But this is in when we talk about the history, this is the starting point. 1945, this meeting aboard uh, a U.S. aircraft carrier between Roosevelt and Ibn Saud. Now, as I said, things got more complicated after 45. The first thing is when this meeting that I just mentioned uh, happened, Israel was not born. Israel was established in 1948. And uh, for uh, everyone you already know, Israel was established with the idea of uh, bringing uh, a state for the Jews. And that was already an issue uh, back in 45. The project, the Zionist project, was already uh, discussed uh, and was uh, a controversial issue for the Arab uh, countries, especially Ibn Saud said at that time to Roosevelt uh, that he was opposing that. Interestingly, also, we have this idea today that the U.S. is the, the, the strongest ally of uh, Israel. And that's, uh, that's true today in 2022. But that wasn't always the case. Uh, it took a long time, it took actually more than a decade for that bilateral relation to be so close. I took here a picture which is uh, from uh, one of the first meetings between the prime minister on the top, Israel with Eisenhower. So that's in the 50s. And the 50s, he has reluctant to a strong relationship with Israel. There was the idea that Israel, uh, with its ideology, which was closer to socialism than to uh, capitalism, was more inclined to be an ally of the Soviet Union. It was also the idea that uh, in the context of the Cold War, for the U.S. to strengthen its relations with Israel would weaken its relations with the Arab world. So what we call the special relation, special relationship between Israel and the U.S. only really started in the 60s. The first president that actually talked of a special relationship between both countries 
was Kennedy. So that tells you that this is not like a natural process. It took uh, more than a decade uh, for that relation uh, to, to get as we know uh, it today. I'll come back later uh, with uh, statistics on the current state of that relation. But moving on into the history of uh, the US, US, uh, uh, US uh, policy towards the region, one key, uh, one key concept that appeared in 1979 is the so-called Carter Doctrine. That's in reference to the name of the president at that time, Jimmy Carter, that during a State of the Union address, so January 1979, uh, Carter made uh, a, a speech in front of the Congress explaining that basically the security of the Persian Gulf was a common good and that the US would protect that security, would contain, would deter any uh, external, uh, uh, external power, external competitor to uh, go against that, uh, that security, that stability of the Gulf. This was at that time, 79, clearly uh, designated against the Soviet Union. Uh, keep in mind that we were still at the, the high of the, the Cold War. Uh, the US under the, the, the presidency of uh, Jimmy Carter were intensifying uh, the, the competition against the USSR. So the Carter Doctrine uh, was created in that context to, to bring security stability to the Gulf, but that was in a sense to deter any external actor from interfering in uh, the region. That was followed in the, the coming years with another concept that surfaced in the 90s, the idea of dual containment. Dual containment was different from the Carter Doctrine. The Carter Doctrine was about uh, making sure no external power, such as the USSR, uh, will play a role in the region. Dual containment was against two regional powers that were considered by the US as uh, troublemakers or spoilers of the regional uh, order. And that were Iran, at that time, uh, the, the Islamic Republic, and Iraq under the, the, the regime of Saddam Hussein back in the 90s. So the Clinton administration back in the 90s explained that it was its policy of dual containment to contain both uh, uh, Iran and Iraq from destabilizing the region. That obviously uh, uh, ended with the fall of the Saddam regime, Saddam Hussein regime in 2003. This leads us to what we could call the neoconservative moment in, uh, after the, the, the fall of, uh, of the Twin Towers in 2001. And the idea uh, with the neoconservative uh, team that were uh, in the uh, Bush administration at that time, that the, the solution, the solution to the Middle East troubles was the promotion of democracy. That was the idea of the neoconservative philosophy, the regime change agenda. Uh, and Iraq was supposed to be the starting point. As we all know now, uh, it, uh, it led to a disastrous uh, a policy after the fall of uh, Saddam Hussein in 2003 with uh, uh, the, uh, the chaos uh, and the civil war uh, that followed. 
But that was, at that time, what we could call the neoconservative moment, because historically that was a very short moment. But a very ambitious moment, if you think about it, that might have been the, one of the few moments where the U.S. really wanted to change the Middle East. Uh, and that was followed by the period that I think we are still living now, which is a period of disengagement. And that started not with Biden, not with Trump, but with Obama. Clearly, you can see when Obama arrives in the White House, so 2009, uh, a feeling of what we could call fatigue. The U.S., uh, as by that time, had already one decade of war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan and in other uh, countries as well for uh, shorter uh, operations. But there was a clear idea that the policy uh, of previous decades was not working, that the U.S. involvement in the Israel-Palestine conflict didn't bring about a solution that the neoconservative agenda, the democracy promotion uh, agenda didn't bring about stability. So after the arrival of Obama, you see clearly an idea of disengagement. Uh, this was followed uh, with a very different style, obviously, but with the very same substance by Donald Trump. Uh, because if you look at the, the rhetoric, Obama said, uh, discussing Iraq and Afghanistan, it's time to do nation building at home. That's, in a sense, a very more sophisticated, very more elegant way to say uh, America first uh, in the Trump way. Uh, and you see that again now uh, with the Biden administration. So when we talk about the current policy of the Biden administration with this idea of right-sizing, uh, that that's that comes from a long uh, uh, long history. It's in a sense the continuity of decades of involvement uh, uh, of the U.S. in the region. Having said that, this is uh, something that uh, uh, we need to keep in mind when we discuss this engagement uh, of the U.S. in the region. This is a map of uh, the, uh, the 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 military commands of the US uh, all, over, all around the world. Uh, the one that, which is in charge of the Middle East is what we call the Central Command, which was created in 1983. You have here on the map, uh, on, the, on the slide, the list of uh, uh, the number of US troops by Middle East countries. I highlighted two, which are the biggest uh, uh, footprints Kuwait with 10,000 and Qatar, 10,000. Roughly, as of 2022, we're talking about 40,000 troops, US troops uh, across the Middle East. So this is why, I mean, I, I, I always use that slide because when we talk about disengagement, this is still a long way from a, a absence of the US in the region. There's no other country, uh, obviously, Russia, China, or European countries that can match that type of presence. And it, it's not, uh, it's not uh, in the, um, the agenda of the, uh, the Biden administration to, to remove all these uh, troops. So even if there's a, a decrease, we're talking about something that will not uh, uh, erase 40,000 uh, troops. So this is something to keep in mind. Uh, now, what are the priorities? So if you look at the 
the current priorities that the, uh, the Biden administration has mentioned, either through official documents or through speeches, uh, these are the three priorities that always come back. Counterterrorism, Iran, and great power competition. You could argue that the first two, uh, counterterrorism and Iran, are not new. That this, these are topics that have been at the top of the agenda for the last two decades, or even more uh, for Iran. Great power competition, I'll come back to that in a few minutes, is a new thing. This was hardly mentioned uh, five uh, or 10 years ago. Uh, but counterterrorism has been on the top of the agenda, obviously, since 9-11. And this is still a significant uh, reason why the US maintains its military presence in, uh, in uh, the region. I, I mentioned very briefly uh, uh, here on the map the presence. You have 900 uh, uh, troops which are still deployed as part of the operation inherent resolve in Syria. Uh, this is this is uh, for counterterrorism missions. This is about uh, uh, fighting uh, the Islamic State and Al Qaeda. Uh, this is also one of the reasons why the U.S. is involved uh, in the Gulf and, in particular, in counterterrorism operations in Yemen. Uh, this importance of counterterrorism frequently comes back in the news when you have uh, announcements such as. Uh, the killing of uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri uh, that you have here on the top, uh, on, uh, on the left, uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was the leader of al-Qaeda after the death of bin Laden. He was killed last month in Kabul, uh, uh, in the middle of Kabul, actually. Uh, uh, he was uh, walking uh, on his balcony and uh, the, the, the U.S., uh, killed him. So that tells you also about uh, the current situation in Afghanistan, but that's another discussion. Uh, so Al-Qaeda is still a major issue for uh, the U.S. The Islamic State as well, uh, and we've seen uh, uh, no later than last February, uh, the, uh, the, the leader of uh, Isla the Islamic State in Syria being killed by U.S. special forces as well. So that is again a, an important reminder that even if the US uh, is talking a lot about Russia, a lot about China, counterterrorism is still a major issue. And at least in the Middle East, this plays a, a significant role when it comes to the resources. Uh, the reason why you have, uh, again, this military footprint is in major. Uh, parts because of these counterterrorism operations. The second big topic is obviously uh, Iran. And we discussed uh, Iran uh, uh, last week. Uh, this is here from the perspective of the US. And when we talk about Iran in Washington today, in 2022, there's no way you can understand uh, the level of um, of anxiety or uh, the, the, the importance, the sensitivity of the topic without coming back to the hostage crisis of 1979. Uh, this is here a picture uh, uh, at the bottom for the youngest uh, ones on Zoom. Uh, in 1979, in the middle of the 
Iran Islamic Revolution, you have uh, Iranian students who storm the U.S. embassy and uh, take about 50, uh, uh, 50 American uh, civilians, citizens, uh, diplomats hostage. Uh, this is going against the Geneva Convention regarding the protection of uh, diplomatic uh, uh, facilities and so on. Uh, this was initially uh, led by students, but uh, very quickly, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini takes the decision to endorse uh, the, um, the hostage uh, taking. Uh, as a result, more than one year passes with this hostage crisis. You have to wait January uh, uh, 81. And actually, uh, the, the, the moment uh, the, the hostages were released was just a few minutes after President Carter uh, uh, left the White House and uh, was replaced by uh, Ronald Reagan. That was a clear uh, message sent uh, by uh, the Iranian regime to humiliate uh, the US president. And until today, this plays as a trauma. Uh, for good or bad reasons, uh, a lot of the US policy towards Iran is shaped, is influenced by the memory of that hostage crisis. This is one aspect. You have other aspects that play a role. Uh, starting in, the, in 2003, you have the nuclear issue that played a significant role uh, between both countries after the revelations that Iran uh, had been hiding uh, nuclear uh, developments uh, going against its uh, commitments uh, with the Non-Proliferation Treaty. The U.S. initially uh, didn't play a role in the first phase of the negotiations in the 2000s. This was uh, mostly... Uh, led uh, by the European countries. But after the arrival of, the, uh, of Barack Obama, uh, we, uh, we uh, saw a major uh, push from the US for a negotiation with the nuclear deal that was signed in 2015. But then uh, Donald Trump, as you all remember, uh, decided in 2018 to remove the US from uh, that deal. Today, uh, uh, there's a clear uh, unknown about uh, the, the, the type of um, uh, agreement that the U.S. would be able uh, to deliver on that, given especially the fact that you have incoming uh, uh, elections in, uh, in the U.S., the midterms elections, with the possibility that uh, the Democrats uh, lose uh, the majority. Uh, the, the third aspect to keep in mind is what you could call the proxy warfare between the U.S. and Iran. Iran and U.S. are not at war directly as of today, but they are at war indirectly through other uh, countries. And you see that very frequently uh, through clashes between the U.S. and either Iranian, uh, uh, Iranian officers or uh, Iran-backed militias. Uh, in particular in Syria and Iraq. Uh, just one case here, which uh, you may remember, uh, you have here on the top uh, two important uh, figures of the Iranian uh, policy over the last uh, decade. Uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the left, sorry, Qasem Soleimani, who was uh, the leader of uh, the Al-Quds forces of the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, 
of Iran. And uh, next to him, you had uh, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Al-Muhandis, who was uh, one of the leaders of uh, one Iraqi militia, uh, which was financed, which was backed by uh, Iran. Both were killed uh, in uh, January 2020 uh, uh, by, the, uh, by the U.S. Uh, forces. Uh, that was, at that time, a decision that took everyone by surprise by the Trump administration. But this, is, uh, this followed uh, uh, previous attacks, uh, previous rocket attacks by uh, uh, Iran-backed militias against U.S. forces in Iraq. So that was not uh, just an isolated act. There, this is one of many exchanges between both sides and why you could call proxy warfare, that these, the U.S. and Iran uh, are not at war directly, but clearly uh, they are exchanging fire very regularly uh, in Syria and Iraq. Now, as I said, there's another topic that was added more recently, which is great power competition. Uh, this is a major uh, new topic and something that we, uh, we will discuss all, al all along our lectures uh, this semester. Uh, and this was added by the Trump administration. You didn't see that before. Uh, this was the shift uh, uh, at that time with the, the idea that the U.S. is no longer engaged or no longer giving priority to the war on terror. It's shifting towards great power competition. When it talks about great power competition, it talks about mostly one country, and that is China. In addition to that, there's also Russia, but at, that's clearly at a lower level. Uh, initially, the Middle East was not considered for that topic. If you look at the first time uh, the, the Trump administration talked about great power competition, that was mostly for Asia. But then U.S. Uh, administration of Donald Trump and now uh, Joe Biden started getting worried about China's presence in the Middle East. This presence uh, we're talking about is mostly economic and technological. Uh, the U.S. expressed very, uh, uh, very explicitly its concerns to uh, countries such as Israel or Gulf countries uh, regarding their, uh, their, uh, their exchanges with China, for instance, in port infrastructures. You have now Chinese operators in Haifa or Hajdod in Israel or in uh, the UAE, in Abu Dhabi or in Qatar or in Oman. Uh, and this, this is one of the reasons why the US is getting more and more anxious about the, uh, the Chinese uh, presence in the, in the region. In addition to that, there's also, and we can talk about that later, uh, the 5G uh, uh, network, which is playing a major role in um, creating that uh, anxiety. Keep in mind that the US, uh, imposed uh, a, a lot of pressure on its European to uh, sign deals with Huawei in the field of uh, 5G. The, the British government actually went back on its initial commitment to sign uh, 5G deals with Huawei following pressures from the US. If you compare that in the Gulf, all the GCC countries, all the Gulf partners of the US signed contracts with Huawei 5G networks. We've come back, we can come back to that uh, later. That tells you about how 
there's a coming uh, tension between the US and its in these countries because of the great power competition. It's a bit different when it comes to Russia. Uh, Russia in the Middle East is obviously older than China, less ambitious. Uh, first, because Russia uh, doesn't have uh, the global reach uh, that China. it doesn't have the same attractiveness than, uh, than China has for Israel, Gulf countries, and so on. Still, Russia plays a significant role, especially uh, in uh, the Middle East, in the, uh, the Mediterranean area. Uh, there is still important concern uh, uh, from the U.S. side regarding Russian presence in Syria, and in particular, the naval presence uh, uh, of Russia in Syria is seen as a potential uh, obstacle uh, to U.S. and NATO presence in the Mediterranean. Uh, and this is, again, an important factor now that you have a conflict in Ukraine. There's always the the worry that there might be a second, a second front and that the second front might be in the Mediterranean. This, is, this sounds like a Cold War scenario, but seen from the US or the NATO perspective, this is one of the reasons why they look at Russian presence in Syria, not just because of Syria, but also because of potential uh, power plays in the Mediterranean. So, here, what's important to keep in mind is that uh, this great power competition is relative, relatively new. It started with the Trump administration, and it, it, it's taking more importance uh, with the Biden administration. This is the idea that the Middle East is less maybe important in itself than in important because of the, 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 the great power competition, that it becomes a battlefield between the U.S., uh, China and Russia. And obviously, uh, we'll see that it, it's not that simple because all the countries in the region still want to claim that they, ha they have agency. Uh, this leads to the third point, which is what is the U.S. policy towards its allies and partners in the region? And here I'll focus on two, uh, two categories and two uh, uh, distinct actors. Israel and the Gulf states. You could argue that these are the two pillars of the U.S. Uh, policy in uh, the Middle East. Uh, and interestingly, uh, we saw that uh, last month with uh, the, the, the visit of uh, President uh, Biden to the Middle East, first to Israel. Uh, you see here on uh, the picture, uh, where it was welcomed by the Israeli government. You see here on the picture, uh, uh, President Biden smiling. Behind him, that's uh, the uh, Iron Dome system, so the missile defense uh, system uh, of Israel. Uh, on the top, you have uh, President Biden, who uh, three years ago said that he wanted uh, to turn uh, Saudi Arabia into a paria state, who uh, last month uh, uh, didn't shake, but uh, uh, exchanged this, uh, uh, how you call it, this uh, hand uh, bump, handshake, handshake uh, uh, with uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, in Riyadh. Obviously, this was a, a very controversial uh, uh, picture uh, in Washington. This was seen as uh, some kind of uh, 
uh, rejection or disillusionment uh, uh, for all those that uh, were calling for uh, a tough uh, U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia. Let's let's move to uh, the first part here, Israel. As I said earlier, you have a special relationship uh, between the U.S. and Israel, a special relationship that uh, grew in earnest in the 60s. And you could argue that uh, uh, today, uh, this is probably the strongest, uh, uh, this is by far the strongest uh, alliance uh, the U.S. has in the Middle East, and uh, one of the strongest, arguably, uh, all around the world. Uh, several indica indicators to uh, explain why this is important. And probably the most important indicator is the level of U.S. Uh, military, military aid to Israel. I'll, I'll show you here uh, a few uh, statistics. Uh, this is uh, the, the, the amount of U.S. foreign aid uh, given to Israel since uh, the creation of Israel. If you look at it, uh, and for those of you interested, you can uh, have a look uh, more closely to the uh, to the slides after the lecture. But most of the aid uh, that the U.S. has been providing to Israel is military, uh, and we're talking about 100 billion dollars uh, over the since the creation of Israel. So that's the first uh, uh, order. Uh, just to give you an idea. Uh, in uh, in comparison, uh, in 2020, Israel uh, was uh, the biggest uh, recipient of U.S. military aid uh, all around the world. Uh, the biggest after that was Afghanistan. Obviously, uh, you can remove Afghanistan uh, from the list for 2022. Uh, but this is uh, the first uh, element here, the fact that this is the country that receives the biggest uh, U.S. military aid today, uh, that this is uh, something that has been uh, provided for decades. The other element, and that's the other uh, uh, chart that you have here on the, uh, the slide, uh, this is not something which is decreasing, it's actually uh, increasing. Uh, if you compare uh, the last decade, we've seen a major increase. Uh, if you adjust with inflation, we're talking about a 10% uh, increase of that military aid. Uh, this was actually decided by the Obama administration. That's a, an interesting uh, fact because there's the idea that uh, Barack Obama was uh, a, a president that was uh, uh, quite negative about Israel, that he had a very difficult relation with Israel and the at that time, Benjamin Netanyahu. Actually, Obama increased the military aid of the U.S. to Israel. One important element also to consider uh, here is that a, a good share of that military aid is now dedicated to missile defense. I showed you earlier a picture of Joe Biden uh, just in front of uh, Iron Dome, uh, the Israeli uh, missile defense system that is used frequently when you have rockets fired from Gaza. This is a system that now uh, benefits from U.S. funding. So that's a, a, another important factor that when you have uh, uh, Israel using missile defense, it now more and more uh, uh, relies on U.S. funding. 
Another important fact that is sometimes not known is the notion of Israel's qualitative military age. This is something that uh, appeared in the 70s and that has become a norm uh, in, in uh, U.S. politics. This is the idea that Israel has to uh, remain uh, the most important military power in the Middle East. And that the U.S. cannot sell weapons, cannot sell military systems to Arab countries that could jeopardize Israel's superiority. This is the idea of military edge. What does it mean concretely? It means that when one president in Washington wants to sell weapons to Gulf states, there must be evidences that these systems will not threaten Israel, and that these systems, such as fighter jets, such as missile, missile defense, are not as good as what the U.S. provides to Israel. And that's something that Congress monitors very closely. Uh, and this appeared in the, in the 70s uh, and was uh, and is today, until today, a major element that defines the U.S. Uh, uh, Middle East policy. Some other aspects which I thought were worth uh, mentioning uh, is the decision of the Trump administration to relocate the U.S. embassy uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, this was a decision taken uh, in 2019. This is a picture of uh, uh, the embassy. Uh, this is the only country, uh, uh, at least from uh, the Western side, there was uh, another country, I forgot which one, uh, that decided after uh, the decision from uh, Donald Trump to move its embassy uh, to Jerusalem. But this was a major uh, decision, a quite controversial decision, but which evidences also uh, the level of proximity uh, uh, with Israel. Uh, another, uh, sorry, finally, a few things to, to keep in mind, the Iranian conundrum. Uh, we've seen uh, during the trip that Joe Biden took uh, last week, uh, no, not last week, last month, sorry, to, uh, uh, to Israel, that Iran played a major role in the discussions. And you could argue that this might be today uh, the most important issue for the bilateral relation between uh, the US and uh, uh, Israel. Uh, they de decided, uh, so uh, Yair Lapid, the prime minister of Israel, and Joe Biden decided to sign what they call the Jerusalem Statement, which is a statement promising that Iran will not Gate, uh, will not get nuclear weapons. This is basically, uh, this has become the central, the central element of the US-Israel uh, relation. Uh, and in a sense, much more than the Israel-Palestine conflict. We can go back to that uh, later, but this is uh, uh, an important uh, phenomenon. The fact that Iran is more important now in the discussion uh, than uh, the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict. Finally, a last thing on the, the Israel-U.S. Uh, special relationship, with a question mark being possible cracks in the special relationship. There are different aspects that you could speculate, different reasons why you could speculate that there might be, uh, uh, on the longer term, uh, some uh, challenges to that special relationship. 
First, uh, there's demography. Uh, the demography of Israel is completely different than it was back in the 60s. Uh, if when the special relationship between Israel and the US was established, Israel was a country which was uh, ruled by the Jewish diaspora, the Ashkenazi, which were uh, mostly Jews coming from Europe. So there was a sense of common culture. Because of the demography, Israel today is not Israel of the 60s. And uh, in a sense, it's a more Middle Eastern slash Russian uh, country than it, is, than it was in the 60s. Uh, so there is clearly an, a tendency when you look at the, 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 the Israeli uh, perspective, uh, there's less a sense of common culture. It also relates on the U.S. side uh, uh, with an evolution of U.S. domestic politics. Uh, we see more and more often uh, uh, U.S. politicians criticizing Israel, in particular uh, uh, among uh, the Democratic, uh, the Democrats. Uh, this was, uh, for instance, the case uh, during uh, the last uh, conflict in Gaza, where uh, a couple of uh, uh, important figures from uh, the, the Democrats uh, challenged the U.S. military support to Israel. Uh, maybe the most important one being Bernie Sanders that argued uh, that uh, the U.S. should uh, reconsider, should review its uh, support uh, according to uh, uh, conditions. Uh, and the idea was that the U.S. should uh, be more careful and not give a free hand to Israel uh, in uh, the conflict in Gaza. So... Again, these are speculations. As of today, there's, there has not been any decision that challenges uh, U.S.-Israel special relationship. So if we had to talk about that, that, that's more like speculation on the long term. So a few indicators here and there that might uh, uh, lead to uh, uh, some challenges. But again, as of today, 2022, uh, the, the, the official relationship is, is still extremely strong. This is less the case when it comes to U.S. Gulf relations. This is why I, why I called it a troubled partnership. Uh, the U.S., as I said, uh, uh, started uh, taking interest in securing the Gulf after 1945. If you remember the picture uh, uh, from the aircraft carrier where you had uh, President Roosevelt meeting Ibn Saud, this led to uh, uh, the uh, deployment of U.S. troops to the region. And I showed you earlier uh, the numbers with Kuwait and Qatar hosting the biggest uh, basis of the U.S. in the region. Just to give you uh, an idea uh, if we visualize that. So this is a map which is a bit outdated. I could not uh, take, could not find a... a, 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 a a, a map from this year. So this is from 2019. So uh, forget about Afghanistan. Uh, uh, but just to give you an idea on the, if you visualize the footprint, uh, this is uh, the countries where uh, the US uh, has a presence. Uh, this is obviously mostly in the Gulf, uh, Bahrain, Qatar, uh, UAE, Oman, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. So this, this is important because uh, the U.S. is still heavily involved in the, uh, uh, in the, the, the Gulf. 
But despite that presence, you have gold fears over U.S. disengagement. This started uh, uh, with the Obama administration. And in a sense, this was the reaction to what I called earlier the U.S. fatigue with the Middle East, the idea that it's time to do nation building at home, to, uh, uh, to stop with uh, the expensive uh, long wars of the Middle East. For Gulf, Gulf countries, for Gulf rulers that uh, depend heavily on that U.S. military presence, the idea of U.S. disengaging from the region is a major concern. Because obviously, uh, this means that this could uh, lead to troubles at home for those countries that may fear uh, social discontent. Uh, and that was in particular the case after 2011. 2011, if you remember, you have the so-called Arab Spring. And one of the countries that uh, was challenged was Bahrain. Uh, I showed you uh, the picture here. Bahrain hosts the U.S. naval headquarters uh, for the Gulf. This is where you have uh, the headquarters for the U.S. Navy for the Middle East. So this was a huge embarrassment. The fact that the small monarchy of Bahrain had a, a quite significant uh, mobilization in the streets of Manama. The U.S. Uh, was hesitant. At that time, it was already calling the president of Egypt, uh, Hosni Mubarak, to step aside, to step down and leave. Uh, And this was feeding, and until today, this feeds the narrative from Gulf rulers that the U.S. cannot be trusted, that the U.S. is not reliable, that although they have this military presence, uh, if there's a crisis, they will leave. This, this is not, uh, uh, one, this is exacerbated on the other side by the role the Gulf plays in U.S. domestic politics. Today, the Gulf countries are toxic uh, in Washington, and you could argue they are toxic also in London and to a certain extent in Paris as well, especially Saudi Arabia uh, and to a lesser extent the UAE. There's the idea that uh, these are countries that heavily supported the Trump administration, countries uh, that have been involved in, uh, in Yemen, uh, in, a country, in, a, in, a, in a war that uh, created a humanitarian tragedy. So seen from the point of view, it's difficult uh, for, go for U.S. government to uh, uh, justify uh, the uh, partnership uh, with Gulf countries. And this is the reason why uh, the Biden administration was extremely uncomfortable with the visit to Saudi Arabia because there was the feeling that uh, this would play bad uh, domestically. Uh, and this is uh, the reason I added at the end here, the Gulf and the US-China competition, because this also is a, a vicious circle. On one side, the US uh, considers that the Gulf countries should, uh, 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 should comply with the US uh, demands regarding China, that they should not uh, uh, they should not deepen their cooperation with China. 
But on the other side, the Gulf countries, those that I just mentioned, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, consider that uh, if the US wants it more transactional, if the US wants to leave, they have also to, uh, uh, to take their own initiatives. And that if they have to consider uh, the US disengagement, they have to, uh, to uh, anticipate, and China, in their view, provides uh, a, a, a decent option for that type of scenario. So you see here something which is more and more also becoming the major issue uh, in the region, this great power competition and more specifically US-China competition uh, in, uh, as a factor of the troubled partnership between US and Gulf monarchies. Having said that, this is my last slide. Uh, just to wrap up, uh, and one uh, one question uh, before we uh, we go to the the Q and A might be: Are we uh, witnessing a post-U.S. Uh, Middle East? And this will be probably something that will be also uh, discussed in coming weeks when we discuss China and uh, the um, and and Russia. Uh, what we see and what we discussed uh, during that lecture is uh, that there is clearly a gradual disengagement at military level. Uh, if you compare today from uh, uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago when you had the war in Iraq, clearly the US military presence is not as big as it was. It's still quite big. Again, I wanted to nuance this idea of disengagement. It's a gradual one. But at the diplomatic level, you clearly see that uh, the US is less and less concerned about diplomatic engagement uh, with the region. And one good indicator of that is uh, the Biden administration responses or reactions to conflicts uh, in Gaza. Uh, what we see also, the second point, is priorities given to external factors. More and more what we will see is the Middle East not defined from the US by what's happening in the Middle East, but what's happening in the Indo-Pacific. In other words, uh, the US is more and more looking at the Middle East through the lens of its competition with China. But that also leads to the third point, which is uh, that if the US is disengaging, if the US leaves more and more uh, the Middle East, if the US is uh, less interested in the Middle East, well, the Middle East considers that it has also its agency. And this is the reason why you see more and more initiatives from local actors, uh, from Israel, uh, from Gulf states, what we discussed earlier uh, in, in previous weeks with the Abraham Accords, from Turkey that wants also to be considered as a, a regional player that matters, as we discussed last week. So all these initiatives are, in a sense, a response to this idea of a disengagement of the US. And I'll stop here. Uh, sorry if I uh, uh, was a bit too long, and uh, I'll uh, take questions. Thank you. A warm applause for uh, a really uh, insightful and uh, thought-provoking uh, lecture on an issue that is uh, very much at the center of Middle Eastern politics and uh, which might be one of the uh, decisive factors uh, shaping the future of this volatile 
extremely important area. Uh, I believe that uh, we should uh, give priority to our distinguished audience uh, here in-house first before we turn to questions coming in from uh, outside. And uh, I encourage uh, the audience to please come forward with questions, but I uh, abuse my position <laughs> as it is becoming a ritual uh, uh, in order to uh, pose my uh, question, which starts with a statement, with your permission, uh, Jean-Luc, because uh, my own uh, past in the region teaches me uh, to look at the balance of power and the realistic situation on the ground more than the wider so-called uh, global geopolitical situation. And honestly, uh, with all due respect uh, for uh, the uh, important presence uh, and interests of China in the region, and uh, with less respect, but uh, with, uh, of course, uh, with a realistic approach to the Russian presence, I must still say that the single important power that is a challenge to the United States in the region is Iran. Let's name it by name. A country, regardless where it is currently with its nuclear program, which I believe is uh, a bit overhyped because uh, we still do not know whether Iran really wants a bomb or not. But the, fact in the facts on the ground show that the single country that uh, shapes events and is a constant challenge to the US, as you have very rightly pointed out, is Iran. So uh, how do we fit uh, this into the wider paradigm? But thank you, and I, I I agree with you in the sense that in 2022, as we look at it, uh, if we look at the U.S. policy in the Middle East, clearly the uh, uh, the most immediate challenges seen from Washington are coming from Iran. Uh, whether we're talking about the nuclear uh, issue, whether we're talking about uh, support to uh, uh, to uh, proxies to uh, uh, Hamas to uh, uh, Hezbollah and so on, uh, or uh, Iran's involvement in Yemen. So uh, the the way the way the U.S. talks about uh, the presence of China uh, in uh, in uh, the Middle East is is different in a sense that it's more like a long term uh, challenge, and it's less in a sense, uh, it's not a security challenge the way uh, we look at uh, Iran, because as I mentioned, uh, when we talk about China in the Middle East, uh, this, this, these are non-military uh, issues. This is mostly, uh, you could argue, an economic competition. Uh, so, but I, I think if, if, if we try to have a, a historical ex explanation or historical answer to that, is that the U.S. also tends to look at regional issues through the lens uh, of global competition. That was the case during the Cold War. Uh, the Middle East was seen, uh, as I said, uh, there was the idea of uh, supporting that partner, uh, supporting Israel would be, uh, uh, is it good or not, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the U.S. and so on. So 
I believe that this is this might be the reason why you see more and more this uh, great power competition narrative in the Middle East. The fact that in Washington, it's first and foremost today about that topic, that Indo-Pacific uh, and uh, because of uh, the, the, the war in Ukraine, Indo-Pacific slash Russia are the two biggest topics. Uh, the Middle East is not uh, anymore a big topic, but to sell it as an important topic, uh, I guess uh, the people in the White House and the Department of Defense have to make the case that there's uh, an, an angle for great power competition. But you're right. I mean, Iran is definitely, as of today, the, the biggest security uh, challenge seen from Washington. Thank you very much. Uh, I open the floor to Brett. I open the, <laughs> the floor for questions from the floor. This might sound awkward. Please, uh, may I uh, suggest that? Uh, Hello, thank you so much, Doctor. That was very informative. I it was actually it's kind of a follow up to to Georgi's question. I was wondering what how does China's military footprint compare to the U.S. and if they're ramping up, and what would their strategic priorities be in the Middle East? Or in the Middle East, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the, the the response the response is very simple. There's no. Uh, there's no permanent uh, Chinese military presence, obviously, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and the only major case uh, that I can remember of is what happened uh, a year ago when there were speculations that were revealed in the Wall Street Journal that, the, that China had been uh, developing a, a naval facility in uh, the UAE. But there was never a concrete evidence. What we know is that if that was the case, that was suspended. Uh, but it's an important uh, thing because, uh, again, this is more an economic uh, competition than a military one. Uh, there's no indication that China uh, aspires to uh, uh, replace uh, the U.S., and again, there's no other country on earth that can have this type of permanent military presence. Uh, you could argue, is it really necessary actually to have uh, that type of uh, footprint? Uh, but that tells you about the disconnect between uh, the, um, the rhetoric about uh, China presence and the reality, which is that there's no, uh, there's no intention, no clearly uh, articulated intention from China. And even if there was, I doubt that China has the capabilities today to deploy 40,000 uh, troops plus all the, 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 the military systems that comes together uh, uh, to the Middle East. I mean, if you compare to what uh, China has in Djibouti uh, uh, with its military base, this is definitely not something that they can uh, match. Uh, Having said that, one thing you can uh, that U.S. Uh, officials would argue is that it might not be about military presence, but some aspects of China cooperation can compromise U.S. military presence. That's one of the reasons why they are so sensitive about the 5G network. Uh, the idea is uh, that it's not just about business, but when you have uh, military uh, presence in the Gulf that operates in countries 
especially if all these countries have 5G networks which are operated by a Chinese entity that possibly has direct connections with the uh, People's Liberation Army, for U.S. military planners, that's a major issue because that that if uh, imagine you have a scenario where uh, you have a conflict with Iran in the Strait of Hormuz, uh, you have email exchanges typically between uh, the military officers and diplomats, diplomats in the embassies using their cell phones. You have no concrete guarantees that the uh, the messages which are outside of the military networks will not be intercepted and will not be sent back uh, to China. Of course, this is speculation. Uh, that's several what if. Uh, but this this explains the sensitivity. So it's not really about the military presence. It's about some aspects where they feel that this can disrupt their military presence. Uh, yes, please, Aisha. So thank you very much for a comprehensive overview uh, of the U.S.-Middle East uh, relations. Um, yes, uh, I'm going back to the uh, statement when you um, defined the uh, U.S.-GCC relation in terms of uh, oil as exchange of security. I wonder to what extent uh, this is valid in today's circumstances, especially after the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, which uh, the sequences of which has been felt by almost everyone around the world, especially in terms of the high energy prices. And the picture you showed uh, with the uh, Biden visit to Saudi Arabia, he one of the demands was actually uh, to ask Saudi Arabia to increase the production of the oil so that uh, the, the energy prices could go down. But what we see from uh, the reaction of Saudi Arabia and the OPEC group, there is no intention to increase the production uh, in the short term, at least. Um, do you think this... Um, exchange of the oil for security is still valid in such circumstances? Or is this like, um, and most recently Saudi Arabia uh, announced like, uh, we will cut, like the OPEC will announce, we'll cut the production uh, whenever it is needed. Is this um, an indication that we need more of a security, you know, support? Um, thanks. Uh, that, that's a, a great question. The and you could argue, actually, uh, the um, the idea of uh, oil in exchange for security, uh, this argument or this arrangement uh, was challenged after 9-11. Uh, and you, I don't have here the uh, some of the, the charts, but you can see clearly, if you look at the, uh, the evolution of uh, energy, um, the sources of energy imports for the U.S. Clearly, uh, after 9-11, they diversified and uh, the, the Gulf doesn't represent uh, anything now uh, for U.S. Uh, energy consumption. Even before the, the discovery of shale gas, they uh, diversified uh, in particular uh, with uh, Africa. Uh, so what's interesting is that this... Uh, decade-long uh, arrangement, oil in exchange of security, was already uh, 
less relevant after 9-11 because the U.S. Uh, at that time considered that it was a national security liability to, uh, to depend uh, on oil uh, from countries. And at that time, uh, these were countries, I mean, Saudi Arabia had, I think, 11 out of uh, 17 uh, hijackers uh, involved uh, in 9-11. So that's the primary reason why they decided to diversify. Uh, and in recent years, if you look at U.S.-Saudi relations, before uh, the war in Ukraine, oil was never discussed. I remember uh, when uh, uh, you had the assassination of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, when the Trump administration uh, justified its support to Saudi Arabia, oil was not mentioned. 20 years ago, that would have been the most obvious answer. We need their oil. Uh, but in 2018, when the U.S. administration justified its support, it was mostly about arms sales, because that was the the, the major uh, area where the U.S. Uh, was benefiting from uh, the partnership. So what's interesting is before the war in Ukraine, uh, in the months before the war in Ukraine, uh, there was a clear uh, feeling that uh, the U.S. wants to leave uh, the Gulf, it, as I said, this idea of right-sizing uh, its presence from the Middle East. And plus, there was this, this, uh, 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 this relationship between the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia, which was terrible from the beginning, because Biden had been very vocal about his opposition to uh, uh, the crown prince. So in a sense, uh, the, the war in Ukraine change the, uh, the narrative. Uh, so now the problem is that the US uh, uh, put uh, oil back on the agenda. But as you said, I mean, it, there's no indication until now that uh, they have been able uh, to influence uh, the, uh, the Saudi or even the Emirati uh, uh, positions on that. Uh, so, I mean, we'll Time will tell, but what's interesting is to see that, yeah, the even be, putting the, 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 the current uh, crisis because of Ukraine, the oil in exchange of security arrangement was already no longer relevant because of 9-11. Uh, but it is still, in a sense, uh, driving the mindset. Thank you very much, Simon. Uh, received a question from abroad. Uh, this comes from uh, Mr. Raidan al Safar, uh, and uh, I'll read it in full. Mm -hmm. uh, last week's MEI session touched on Iran's push for a regional security arrangement. Is there a US counterproposal to that push, especially considering the Iraqi situation? So, Iran, Iranian. Um, Ah, yeah, yeah, yes, okay. yes. Uh, Iran's push for regional security arrangement. No, not really, because the and if uh, I'm not sure everyone uh, followed the last week's uh, session. So uh, the the idea is, and I think it's an old Iranian rhetoric that uh, the security of the Gulf should be led by the local countries, not external powers. Uh, and in a sense, it's. Iran's proposal is an alternative to the U.S. proposal. So the U.S. didn't 
uh, uh, as far as I know, didn't formally respond to uh, the Iranian uh, project. But you could argue that uh, uh, no country uh, in the Middle East uh, actually embraced the Iranian proposal anyway. Uh, the U.S. The U.S. is, in a sense, the uh, the primary uh, security provider by default as of today, because there's no other external power that wants or has the capability to play that role. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the U.S. wants to keep it that way. And what you saw over the last two decades uh, with the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, Obama, Trump, each administration had plans for regional frameworks. Uh, so they, they would call it uh, the, the Gulf Security Initiative, they would call it the Middle East Strategic Alliance, and so on. Each had a different name, different acronyms. The idea was to create some kind of uh, uh, regional arrangement, regional forum with Gulf states, possibly uh, Israel. Uh, each time it failed. It failed because uh, U.S. has close relations with all these countries, but at a bilateral level, not a multilateral level. Uh, U.S. has uh, relations with all the Gulf states, but Gulf states between each other doesn't, don't trust each other, So, especially in, in the field of uh, military security. So by default, the U.S. is providing that regional arrangement. And I say by default, because if you ask uh, uh, people uh, in, uh, in Washington, they have uh, a lot of plans, uh, the literature, if you look at uh, think tank projects, think tank publications, there's uh, 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 a tremendous amount of publications that call for uh, some kind of a NATO for the Middle East and so on, but that, that never succeeded. Thank you. Well, I, uh, I'm very grateful on the behalf of Mr. Sarkar. And let me have Clemens uh, let me uh, read out a question from Mr. Zor Jiashuan. Uh, I hope I pronounced his name uh, correctly. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I was wondering if there was any reaction on Iraq's part when the US left Afghanistan, seeing how Iraq receives the highest aid from the US and Afghanistan receives the second highest aid. Uh, yeah, I mean, there were, there were reactions, but the uh, US administration uh, officially, and I, I assume also uh, unofficially, uh, uh, made clear that what was happening in Afghanistan was different than what was happening in, in Iraq. And in a sense, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's true in the, if you look at the current state of uh, Iraq, the, the, relation, uh, the relationship between the US and uh, the Iraqi government uh, was much more stable than uh, what was happening in Afghanistan. So uh, there's clearly uh, a downsizing of US presence in Iraq. Uh, but given the, the importance, which is still uh, assigned to counterterrorism, uh, as far as we, we see, uh, the U.S. is uh, uh, playing a role in, in Iraq. So it, it definitely uh, provided reassurance uh, messages uh, to the Iraqis that it would not leave 
the same way it did uh, in Afghanistan. And again, it, this the way the withdrawal in Afghanistan was uh, was organized was uh, mainly caused by the fact that you had the Taliban, uh, and you don't have a similar situation in Iraq, uh, fortunately, uh, as of today. Um, thank you. I mean, uh, I, my, my impression is that um, uh, the issue of uh, China is still uh, uh, very thought-provoking to many uh, in our audience um, beyond this whole. Um, if this uh, question doesn't provoke any of the uh, audience present here, I would again, uh, I, I would, oh no, I'm sorry. There, there is one question there. Please uh, go ahead, Clemens. Hi, John Lu. Thanks for the lecture. Um, I've got two questions. It's on uh, your slides on uh, the military part, where Israel has, uh, Israel should have military edge you know, over its uh, neighbors in the region. And the U.S. is supporting that military heavily, uh, but in of course the Gulf states have done their military procurement of weapons and things like this. So the other thing that you didn't touch upon is training. So who provides the training? Does the U.S. provide military training to the Gulf states? I mean, you were you were of course based there, and you probably know know this. Uh, the, the second part of the question is about, of course, great power competition, which you cover in your second half of the lecture. Uh, and we saw uh, Beijing saying that the US is the main instigator for the Russian-Ukraine crisis. Now, my question is really about US relationship with Europe. And, and are they doing anything about this? And if they are, what's the plan? Uh, and, and how is the transatlantic alliance coming back to life after Donald Trump foiled it uh, you know, beforehand? So that's those my two I didn't get the second question. Is on the on the U.S. Europe uh, relationship and how they are planning to you know in this great power competition context that you are talking about, how will they you know tackle the problems at hand and what are the uh, you know repercussions or implications for the Middle East in that sense? Okay. Um, so regarding the the, the first uh, the first question, the uh, yes, I mean the the U.S. is involved uh, and heavily involved in uh, the uh, the training of uh, uh, of Gulf uh, armed forces, uh, it, and this goes from tactic tactical training to uh, the, um, for instance, when you have uh, when you have uh, fighter jets or. Uh, missile defense systems which are delivered uh, to Saudi Arabia, Qatar, or the UAE, uh, you have to send also uh, military operators that will train uh, the Saudi, the Emirati, uh, or Qatari officers, because this is not, I mean, these are very complex systems. So uh, usually these, these trainers stay for a long time. Uh, and so that's, that's one thing. Uh, you have also military advisors, what we've seen uh, in the war uh, in Yemen, where, uh, and that was decided at the time of Barack Obama, even before Trump, uh, Obama decided to uh, detach military advisors to the Saudi coalition. Uh, so you had uh, uh, US military officers uh, who 
were involved in the, the air campaign. Um, they didn't have like a direct say for legal reasons. Uh, we're talking about military advice. Uh, but it's important yet yeah, to have that in mind that the US is heavily involved, not only through its military presence that I had mentioned, the, the numbers that I gave are uh, the US officers, US soldiers operating under a US chain of command. In addition to that, you have contractors uh, and uh, uh, you have uh, a lot of uh, former U.S. or Western uh, officers that go into the Gulf to provide military training and so on. So this creates another aspect of the dependency. And the reason why uh, when we talk about this engagement, uh, this has to be nuanced by the fact that the U.S. is heavily involved uh, in in all the layers uh, of the security in the region. So here, uh, especially for uh, Gulf Armed Forces. Uh, with regards to your uh, second question, uh, because that, that could be actually uh, the, the topic of another uh, lecture, uh, US-Europe, uh, and there is there are some aspects of cooperation, coordination, uh, especially at the level of NATO, uh, but keep in mind that not all countries of Europe are members of NATO and uh, vice versa. So there's not always the perfect overlap between NATO and the uh, European Union. Uh, but what we saw is that there's close coordination uh, on uh, the provision of arms to Ukraine. Uh, there's more and more alignments of European countries regarding uh, the China challenge, uh, the way it is perceived in the US. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, the UK uh, went back on its initial uh, commitment to sign a deal with Huawei for the 5G uh, network. Uh, but in the Middle East, we don't see at the moment a coordination. Uh, and one example uh, is the anecdote that you already know, the fact that in uh, last, last year, the US stopped uh, the, um, the sale of the F-35, the, the most uh, expensive fighter jet uh, developed by the US. It was supposed to be sold to the UAE. Uh, it was suspended because the U.S. Uh, expressed concerns about Chinese presence in the UAE. Uh, what was the response uh, to, the, uh, to the suspension of the sales? Uh, the, the UAE bought eight fighter jets, not from China, but from France. So it, it bought the Rafale aircraft uh, around the same time. Uh, the, the the sales with the Americans were and you uh, one that there's no coordination between the US and uh, its European allies business is business uh, and that actually uh, this this means that for the Europeans for the French they apparently are more comfortable with the idea that China is presence is present in the UAE uh, that was not expressed this way by France, but you may uh, wonder why is it a problem for the U.S. and not for its European allies. Uh, so that 
more broadly, that you, you don't see at the moment coordination uh, between the US and Europe on the Middle East. On the response to Russia in Europe, there's strong coordination, but and in the Pacific uh, either. There's no coordination, no co cooperation between the US and its European allies there. Uh, is, um, yeah. I would read out the ah, last okay. question. Or maybe we can take uh, both. Uh... Sorry. Yes, let me let me uh, proceed with this, and then we will hear you. Okay. So, Frank uh, Khan asked, uh, "Is there still a strategic imperative for the U.S. to provide Israel?" Uh, let me repeat it. Is there still a strategic imperative? for the US to provide Israel with such military support in light of Israel's present military prowess. And we can take uh, two questions uh, together, no? Good, or... and then let us, hmm. let us hear our question from the uh, uh, Would you say that uh, the experience of uh, the US in Iraq with regime change and the 2011 Arab Spring were motivated by ideology and the disengagement which we see for the past decade represents a with ideological driven decision making and uh, uh, the reason why the GCC countries uh, do not trust uh, uh, stability in US decision making is this alternate alteration between uh, ideology and pragmatism. So the reason why the, the Gulf states um, uh, don't trust is because of uh, this, the, the role of ideology? Oh, okay. Uh, okay, so uh, first, and I'll be quick because we have five minutes left. Um, regarding U.S. military support to Israel, and that's, uh, that's a very uh, relevant question because uh, actually a, a lot of people both in Israel and in, in the U.S. makes the case that Israel is an extremely advanced military power today. Uh, it has some of the best uh, defense industry in the world uh, with uh, 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 world-class uh, systems such as the uh, Iron Dome. So does it really need uh, uh, that amount of money from the U.S.? And until recently, uh, there, there was the case to make that Today, Israel doesn't uh, need that. The problem that we see over the last, I'd say, 10 years is the fact that more and more uh, Israel faces threats uh, which, are, which might look uh, like small threats, uh, rockets being fired uh, from Gaza uh, and possibly uh, from uh, South Lebanon. Uh, one rocket uh, like this costs about $500, one that is launched from Gaza. Uh, when you have the Iron Dome system, uh, when you have the uh, interceptor, and some of you have seen that on Twitter, uh, well, the next time you see this video, uh, one interceptor costs just $50,000. That's a rough estimate. Uh, so think about uh, the, the size of your wallet uh, just to uh, uh, destroy the rocket, the $500 rocket. Uh, so, I mean, this is uh, more complex than that, of, of course, but this is uh, a problem. And that's the reason 
uh, more and more uh, uh, the U.S. is allocating its military uh, support to Israel uh, to uh, the development of missile defense, because there's the idea that it's costly today and it might be even more costly tomorrow because uh, rockets, drones are more and more easily available. Uh, so uh, what do you do with that? I mean, do you need all the time uh, these costless systems? This is why uh, until today, uh, this military support has not really been challenged. Uh, and one of the reasons why uh, when there were discussions in the Congress about should the U.S. Uh, provide that type of, that type of uh, support, uh, the argument that prevailed was uh, Israel is under uh, rocket attacks constantly, so it needs uh, that uh, amount. It could not, as of today, it could not have uh, the number of interceptors, the number of uh, uh, Iron Dome batteries that it has deployed if it didn't have the U.S. Uh, support. So that's the reason why you still have that support. Uh, regarding your 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 two questions, uh, and yes, the ideology played a role in uh, the, the in launching the war in Iraq. Uh, the war in Iraq was not only about regime change. Obviously, uh, there was a combination of different elements. Some some members of the uh, the Bush administration were neoconservative believers that thought they needed to promote democracy and change the regime. Others, uh, like uh, the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, was actually a pragmatic, or he would see himself as a pragmatic, thinking that the, the, the US needed to get rid of Saddam Hussein uh, because there was the fear of uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but yeah, ideology played a role uh, in that, um, in that decision. With regards to the Gulf fears, uh, it, the Gulf fears uh, about the US is, the, as I said, the, uh, the fact that they feel the US cannot be uh, trusted. There's the idea of inconsistency. Uh, and that started actually uh, with the war in Iraq. Initially, the Gulf countries, the Gulf states were quite supportive of the toppling of the Saddam Hussein regime. Uh, they were pleased by the fact that Saddam Hussein was no longer there. Uh, but when they saw that the Bush administration didn't plan anything after the war, that it was chaotic and that the only winner of that situation was actually Iran, uh, they started wondering about the, the reliability of the U.S., uh, so I think it's more about consistency uh, and something that you that a lot of partners, allies of the U.S. Uh, uh, can you trust, for instance, the Biden administration when it talks about a nuclear agreement? But what guarantees do we have that the next president will not just dismantle uh, that agreement? Uh, so. I'm not sure it's about ideology or pragmatism. It's more like, uh, can you trust uh, that partner? And more and more, there's a credibility issue uh, when it comes to uh, the U.S. Uh, intentions uh, in the Middle East. And that, that is the reason also why, uh, in a sense, it's fair that Gulf states uh, look for their own 
alternatives that uh, if you feel the, the, the your major partner is not reliable, uh, that would be uh, too dangerous just to sit and re rely on him. Thank you very much. Well, on this note, with this uh, very evocative sentence, <laughs> I, I would like to thank uh, uh, Dr. Saman for an excellent uh, uh, and uh, uh, really eye-opening lecture on a topic that uh, concerns all of us, not just those working uh, in doing research in this institute, but I think all those who are following the Middle East. Um, I wish that uh, we can still pick up on some of the topics that you have touched upon, uh, because uh, an hour and a half is certainly not enough to discuss all aspects of uh, such a wide-ranging issue. Uh, but uh, here, of course, on behalf of uh, our, uh, our spectators and listeners abroad, and on behalf of our distinguished audience here, I would like to thank you very much, and I would like to give you a big hand once again thank you. Uh, for an, a really excellent lecture. And we can only hope that soon we will again uh, hear you and see you on another <laughs> topic related to the Middle East. And for all of you, I would like to uh, thank your uh, presence, your cooperation, your excellent questions. And uh, we will continue next week with our uh, following piece of the seat. Thank you very much. Thank you.